Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM. Here's your host, David Welch. Welcome, everyone, to our second edition of Upstream Downstream. I'm your host, David Welch. As one of the most divisive topics of our time, the debate goes on for healthcare reform in America. Even still, the goal of the Stubblefield Institute is to demonstrate that issues such as this can be discussed not only in a civil manner, but in such a way that solutions can be reached. On September 22nd, the Stubblefield Institute hosted a public forum as part of the American Conversation Series dedicated to the issue of health care reform in America. The forum panelists included the president of Galen Institute, Gracie Marie Turner, former director of the Center for Health Policy Research and Ethics, Dr. Len Nichols, former health insurance company executive and supporter of Medicare for All, Wendell Potter, and it was moderated by one of the nation's most respected health and policy thought leaders, former PBS health correspondent, Susan Denser. As expected, each of them brought different viewpoints on how to tackle the issue of health care reform, which has been magnified as a result of COVID-19, as Wendell Potter says it has left many without health insurance. If you're laid off uh, or furloughed, as 45 million plus Americans have been, you also, in many cases, are losing your health insurance. And uh, it's been estimated that about at least 12 million of those who've lost their jobs uh, have lost coverage for themselves and their families. Dr. Len Nichols reminds us that for years, the U.S. has relied on an employer-based system in which families receive their health care coverage through their employers. And this pandemic has caused people to lose their jobs as well as their health coverage in addition to the estimated 26 to 30 million already uninsured Americans. Dr. Nichols says those who have lost insurance or were already uninsured are reluctant to pay the high deductibles, especially when the sticker price places that deductible in the thousands. Those who could get insurance through their work may believe the premiums are too expensive, this is if their job offers insurance, as Wendell points out the shrinking percentage of businesses that offer their employees health insurance coverage. One of the organizations that I lead is called Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation. We represent about 3,200 uh, employers across the country, and many of those uh, no longer are able to offer coverage to their workers. In fact, uh, over the course of the the last 20 years, the percentage of employers uh, that are able to offer coverage to their workers has been uh, steadily declining. In 1998, 99, about 70% of the nation's employers were offering coverage to their workers. Now, uh, fewer than 50% are. Grace Marie Turner, an advocate for market-driven healthcare solutions, addresses a study done last year by the Cook Family Foundation, which found that 99% of people who are legally in the U.S. do have access to health coverage through their workplace. 
an estimated 4.5 million haven't signed up for health coverage through their jobs, and that those who have access to health coverage through the Affordable Care Act may not be able to afford the premiums, even if they receive subsidies. Dr. Len Nichols, who was an advisor to the creation of the Affordable Care Act, reveals that many involved in its creation didn't expect the general population to be as dismayed as it was. And I think it's fair to say a lot of the health economists in my camp, those who are a little bit left of center and wanted this all to work perfectly, we underanticipated the sticker shock that we were going to impose on people who had been uninsured and suddenly we say to them, okay, now you can buy insurance at a sliding scale, but the deductible you will have will be five, six, seven thousand dollars And they looked at that and they said, let me get this straight. You want me to pay a premium that I wasn't paying last year, but I got to pay seven thousand bucks out of pocket to get any coverage at all. I don't think so. And that's that explains the people who didn't buy non-group and are not buying employer. Wendell Potter comments that some of those who are willing to pay for health coverage through the Affordable Care Act find themselves underinsured as they believe they are saving money by purchasing plans with lower premiums, but may find themselves in financial difficulty in the event of getting an illness or getting injured. We've been on this journey of moving everyone into high deductible plans. So not only do we have a growing problem of people without insurance, we have a growing, in fact, a more rapidly growing problem of people who are underinsured. The Commonwealth Fund estimated earlier this year that about 40% of people who get coverage on the Obamacare exchanges are underinsured because they look primarily at premiums and not so much at uh, out-of-pocket cost. And uh, they're, uh, in many cases, really going to be struggling if they get sick or injured in these plans. According to Wendell Potter, the issue of being underinsured isn't just a problem for those who buy coverage through the Affordable Care Act, but it's also experienced by those who shop for private insurance plans, as he relates his experience formerly working for private insurance companies. When I was in the industry, uh, as we were uh, pushing high deductible plans, we used the term consumer-driven health care uh, as a, a term to try to cover up exactly what these were, which are high deductible plans. Uh, but we don't have the information that people really need. There is a lack of transparency. People are not able to really shop and make prudent decisions uh, at the time of need. Uh, if you're having a heart attack, you're not going to necessarily be in the position to shop for the best care. Uh, and if you're in a high deductible plan, uh, you're, you're going to be facing a lot of, of uh, out-of-pocket costs in this country. It was situations like this that led Wendell Potter to his decision to leave his career in private health insurance as he recounts the poor quality of health care for those either without insurance or those with too high of deductibles. One of the things, uh, the, the events that really triggered my decision to leave was going to an outdoor clinic, not terribly far from West Virginia in Wise County, Virginia, not too far from where I grew up in Tennessee. I uh, went there out of curiosity while I was visiting my family. 
And uh, I've learned when I got there, there were, there were people who were lined up waiting to get care for hours. Uh, and they were in, this, in, in rain, they were soaking wet, waiting to get care that I noticed at this county fairground led to barns and animal stalls. So these people were waiting to be treated in barns and animal stalls. It woke me up to see, to realize just the, 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 the circumstances that so many people in this country are in. I, le- I learned that day that a lot of those folks uh, would love to have had insurance, uh, but most of them, and they most, mostly had jobs, but they worked for employers that did not offer coverage. Uh, and they couldn't afford to get it uh, uh, through the individual market, certainly back then, because uh, uh, there were no subsidies. There were no, no ways for people to be able to buy coverage that they, uh, at, at that time without, without subsidies. That continues to this day. The, the crowds at these uh, free clinics continue to swell. I also learned that day that a lot of those folks said they were told by their, their insurance companies, they were in these high deductible plans, uh, that, uh, sorry, we can't do anything for you because you are in these plans. All three panelists agree that the number one issue in healthcare is the cost of coverage and that the projected costs are unsustainable. Grace Marie Turner addresses a concern with the focus of hospitals being on revenue as opposed to focusing on preventative health care specifically the case of one hospital which canceled an outreach program making health care both more affordable and more accessible to those suffering from diabetes. There's a story in the New York Times several years ago about a New York City hospital that wanted to do a better job of taking care of patients with diabetes because they were coming in at, a high, at advanced stages of their disease and then they were much more likely to be hospitalized. And they said, you know, what if we were to do an outreach program to provide care to people in their home, don't make them come to the hospital, but really provide better access to care so we can avert these crises. And it was a very successful program, hugely popular. But the hospital actually shut it down because the board said what's happening is we're losing revenue because people are not coming in for the hospitalizations, which provided greater revenue to the hospital. Wendell Potter raises a similar concern that insurance companies are more interested in increasing their own profit margins than they are in covering people's health care. Uh, one of the things that became abundantly clear to me was that uh, the company that I work for and others in the industry are not really themselves interested in, in, in covering us all. They want to make sure that as they grow, it's profitable growth. I can't tell you how many times my CEO told us that our growth has to be profitable growth. And to make sure you've got profitable growth, you have to make sure that those who are enrolled in your benefit plans uh, are not going to be filing a lot of medical claims. So you've got that. But I will say also that uh, uh, it is a problem of people with in low incomes uh, as well who cannot afford coverage. Dr. Len Nichols mentions just how much of a family's income is taken up for health care insurance. I mean, if you look at the, the sort of 
what's a family premium today, which would cover and compare that to the median family income. All right, and the, the family premium today takes about 27% of the median family income. Now that says a lot about income growth over time and healthcare cross growth over time, but it, it says it all in terms of we have made a system that almost half our people can't afford. It begs the question, how do we make healthcare more affordable as we begin to move away from the employer-based system, leaving more Americans to have to find insurance through either private companies in the exchange created by the Affordable Care Act or Medicaid that was expanded in many states by the enactment of the ACA? As I mentioned earlier, Wendell Potter is a supporter of Medicare for All, which has gained a stronger base in recent years in the Democratic Party. But Turner warns of the cost that it could impose on hospitals. If we were to pay all doctors and hospitals at the same rate that Medicare pays, now 40% of them would go under. So it's really not sustainable. We've got to find a different solution. Dr. Len Nichols agrees that implementing a Medicare for All system in the U.S. would bankrupt many hospitals, given that 95% of hospitals already have a negative Medicare margin. He also questions how many doctors would continue to work in a Medicare for All system. Wendell does acknowledge that COVID-19 has had a financial impact on healthcare institutions, although insurance companies themselves have been doing well. Uh, my former employer, Cigna and Humana before that, have done extraordinarily well. Um, and, and in fact, the, all of the large for-profit insurers, including United Healthcare, the largest, have set record profits during this pandemic. Uh, while a lot of, uh, of, of hospitals and, and caregivers have, have not fared well at all, we've seen that many physician Physicians and physician organizations, physician groups are, are struggling to keep their, their doors open. Some experts believe the answer to the issue of health care may be found in a balance between public and private options. Dr. Len Nichols suggests examining countries in the world who do have universal health coverage, but also still have the option of buying private insurance. When you look around the country, around the world in a serious way, where are the countries that are, if you will, more like us, less like England? And I'm talking now about Switzerland and the Netherlands and Israel and Germany, where they have insurance and they have universal coverage and they manage to do it without killing each other. Now, how is that possible? Well, they have more defined rules than we've ever had in our country. And I see Wendell nodding and I know he and I both agree on this, but they also have choice and they build in choice because Americans like choice. According to Wendell Potter, private insurance companies in these countries mentioned by Dr. Nichols operate as nonprofits. Still, Dr. Nichols says that implementing a public option as a choice, as opposed to Medicare for All, is a metaphor for getting serious on cost containment and could be what is needed to get everyone covered, so long as the public option pays hospitals the market rate. As he said earlier, many hospitals have negative Medicare margins. If hospitals go bankrupt, 
it would cause health care to become even more inaccessible. As 42% of Republicans are willing to consider a public option, panel moderator Susan Denser asked Grace Marie Turner for her position on using a public option to lower health care costs and guarantee access to health coverage. She mentions previous failed attempts of states to create public options, cautioning them as a mechanism to consider carefully. With the public option, that is pretty close to the co-ops. Remember the co-ops that were the sort of the, the, the substitute for the public option. Since that was pulled out in the Senate bill, it allowed states to each create a healthcare cooperative that was basically a public health insurance plan. I think all the four of them have gone under and leaving millions of people, probably tens of millions of people, scrambling to find other coverage. And it was because they were not well enough funded, not well enough managed, a lot of different reasons. So I think we need to think really carefully about the public option and how it how it would be structured, I think it very likely could turn into something that would make it very difficult. Ms. Turner also specifies that if we are ever going to see real health care reform in our country, we need to work together to find a solution that works for all Americans, as opposed to only supporting a one-party bill. One of the reasons we are having such a polarized debate over health reform in this country is because Either one side wins or the other side does, and we keep passing health legislation on a partisan basis. One of the reasons that Medicaid and Medicare have been so structurally sound is because it was passed on a, on a broad bipartisan basis. The same thing with the, with HIPAA, the same thing with state children's health insurance program. If you can build bipartisan consensus, work with Congress, not on getting, pushing your agenda through, but something that you believe both sides can agree on, much like we are today, and begin to build a platform to get that through Congress as soon as you can, because that will show the American people we're doing things differently. While the panelists may not see eye-to-eye on how to repair our health care system, Wendell Potter calls attention to something on which they can all agree, the overall and increasingly poor health status of Americans, including diabetes, obesity, and other chronic conditions. We have such an unhealthy population. We have one of the, uh, uh, the, the country has, our country has the, one among the highest rates of obesity in the world. So what can we do to address that? What can we do to address the high rates of asthma? Some employers have opted to create wellness programs for their employees, but there was a mutual agreement that using such programs offered through companies isn't an appropriate way to tackle the issue. A major cause of the deterioration of our overall health can be attributed to the lack of funding toward public health activities, which, according to the moderator, Susan Denser, has been diminished over the past several years. We know that uh, public health funding at the federal level, which basically is money that goes out to the states to carry out their public health activities, we know that that has fallen in real and absolute terms over the past decade. And we know that the states cut back a lot of their public health spending in the Great Recession and to a large degree did not restore it. 
Wendell Potter further points out that only a small fraction of healthcare funding actually supports public health. Uh, we need to invest much more in public health than we have. It's been estimated that only about 3% of the more than $3.5 trillion we spend on healthcare in this, this country goes to, to public health, and we're seeing the, the consequences of that. According to Grace Marie Turner, those most affected by cuts to public health are lower-income families. We've known for a long time that there is a direct correlation between income and health. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to suffer from chronic conditions for a whole host of reasons. And particularly in the, in the pandemic, we've seen that people with lower incomes, particularly in inner cities, are often in multi-generational households where one person goes out and works at a job, maybe as a, as a first-line health responder, and come back and the whole family is much more likely to be infected. Dr. Len Nichols shares a similar sentiment on what the COVID-19 pandemic has emphasized in our society and suggests steps we need to take to improve public health by addressing the sources that lead to poor health. We need to make sure that all Americans get the care they need in order for this American experiment of ours to thrive and to continue. We need to fund public health and we need to listen and take seriously the science that comes out of that. And we need to pay more attention to the conditions that are upstream of the healthcare system. And I'm talking about housing, food, transportation, complex case management, social isolation. We need to do that in order to improve the effectiveness and the efficiency of our healthcare system. We can't solve healthcare unless we also embrace our need to deal with social issues as well. That's what I learned from COVID. Wendell Potter asserts that to come to grips with improving overall health, the societal conditions facing families needs to be addressed and not just the health system itself. Uh, when you're talking about health, that that is, uh, that, that is a broad term that does encompass addressing those so-called social determinants of health, uh, which are uh, affected by uh, the neighborhoods that you live in and whether or not you have access to um, uh, housing that uh, is suitable and, uh, uh, and, and, and water and uh, the, the quality of the air that you breathe. Uh, those all need to be looked at and addressed. And we've, we've not done a very good job at all of done that at all. And uh, we, as I said earlier, we haven't devoted very much funding uh, to, uh, to, to public health and to really determining what we can do to make sure that people uh, lead, are able to lead healthier lives. The general consensus reached is that in order to improve public health, more public funding needs to be devoted to public health programs such as community health centers, which could help to identify and address the underlying reasons for health issues in their respective communities. Grace Marie Turner adds that while community health centers can be an element to cutting the cost of health care, she agrees that the whole health care system needs to refocus on keeping Americans healthy to begin with. We have to get back to a system that rewards doctors and 
and hospitals and everybody in the health sector for keeping people well, doing a better job of managing care rather than just dealing with crisis management when someone presents at a hospital. Community health centers can be a huge component of that, but that also really requires a lot of structural changes in the health system to untangle a lot of the financing and incentives and the rules and regulations that keep them from doing what we all know is the right thing for our health sector. Who decides what the right thing is for our health? The only way to come to that conclusion is through civil and genuine conversation. And that will do it for this week's edition of Upstream Downstream. The full form is available on the Stubblefield Institute YouTube channel and on the Stubblefield Institute Facebook page. I'd like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our assistant producer, Bianca Eisen. Please join us next week for another edition of Upstream Downstream from WSHC on the campus of Shepherd University. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream. Presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.